Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. So I've just been having fun talking about heaven. And so I've been answering a few questions. Um, I'm going to answer a couple questions. Uh, one, one question today that is frequently brought up, and it is, will we continue to be married in heaven? Like if we were married on earth, will we still be married in heaven? And so I've been taking a poll of who would, who would like to remain married, you know, if you had a choice. So I'm not going to do that to you today because I've always caught guys specifically who are not paying attention. And uh, that gets them in trouble for the rest of the week. But uh, I'm going I'm to be nice today. No tricks, nothing like that. Um, uh, Will we still be married in heaven? The short answer is no, um, there will not be marriage in heaven. Um, Jesus um, shares this with with, with a group uh, called the Sadducees that interview him in the gospel. Uh, they, they, They interview Jesus and they say, okay, what they're doing is they're trying to trick Jesus. And so the scripture, they, they come before him and they say, okay, Jesus, so let's imagine that um, this one woman marries this guy and uh, then the guy dies. And so the woman then marries his brother and he dies. And then the woman marries his other brother and he dies. And, and, and you know, up till seven, I think there was seven brothers in this story. It's a hypothetical situation. They say, so, because you, you have to understand that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe um, that, that the, the dead would be raised and would be taken up to heaven. They, they, they didn't believe in that. And so one of the reasons they didn't believe in that was because of this hypothetical situation. They said, look, if this lady marries seven different guys throughout her life, who will she be married to in the resurrection? Now, you know, it's a trick question because they don't even believe in the resurrection and they're asking Jesus about the resurrection. But Jesus doesn't fall into the trap instead. You know, and Jesus doesn't even point out the obvious question that I would ask, you know, who, who is this woman and why are guys continuing to marry her? This is not good. <laughs> this is the black widow, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to hook up with her. But uh, anyway, you know, the, 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 the question Jesus puts forth the answer and he says, okay, look, you guys don't understand the power of God and you really haven't read the scriptures. He said, actually in the resurrection, you are not married or given in marriage because because you are like the angels. So that is the typical biblical answer when people ask, well, I really love my spouse. You know, we, we've, we've shared 70 years together and, you know, will we still be married in heaven? And so people look at that passage of scripture and Jesus says, no, there's no marriage in heaven. Therefore, the simple answer is no, no, you won't be married. But I do feel like even though that is the answer and that is true, there's no marriage in heaven. You really do have to ask yourself, what exactly is marriage? Um, and what exactly is this, this, this state of being like an angel? And, and, and so to understand what marriage is, you have to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, back to Genesis, when God first instituted marriage, the initial point of marriage started off with a covenant, a covenant that Adam made with Eve, a covenant actually that we kind of repeat um, in American weddings uh, every single day, right? Two people come forward uh, uh, and they exchange vows. We call them vows. A vow is much stronger than a promise. A vow is is, is, as we say in our marriage ceremony, till death do us part. So even in modern America, we understand that death has a parting 
aspect. Death parts people and death parts marriages. And so our vows actually um, are structured in such a way that we believe that after death, some, there will be something else, not necessarily marriage. And, and so our vows or our covenant with each other is for this lifetime. And actually the Bible has a lot to say about covenants. There are covenants throughout the Bible. Um, God makes a covenant with his people. Um, God makes a covenant with Abraham, uh, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God makes a covenant with his, his chosen people um, through Moses on Mount Sinai. God makes a covenant with David and with his son Solomon. God is constantly making covenants. And in fact, when Jesus came to earth, he, he said, he said this, is, this cup is the... Is the blood, is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. So even our salvation right now is dependent on a covenant. A covenant is an agreement that God has made with us that he will save us from our sins, that he will forgive us, that he will save us, that he will sanctify us, and that he will present us wholly to his father, that he'll take us to heaven. It's a promise. It's a commitment. It's a contract of sorts. That's what a covenant is. And, and that is why there won't be marriage in heaven. Hello. Because there is... Now, well, the tech team's pulling, pulling cords back there. No. Uh, because there is no need for covenants in heaven. The reason you make a covenant, the reason Roe and I make covenants with each other is because we know that at some point we'll be tempted to break those covenants. And so, and so sort of the, 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 the opposite of that is, is very popular nowadays is to, is to say we don't need to make a covenant. We don't need a piece of paper to prove, or I don't need a piece of paper to prove my love to you, you know. I don't need the, 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 the contract of marriage um, to live together and to be faithful to you and because, because, I don't, because it's kind of antiquated. I don't need a covenant. I don't need a contract. I don't need a piece of paper to prove my love to you. And that is true. You don't need a piece of paper to prove love. But if, if you go to buy a house and you talk to Wells Fargo and they say, okay, we want you to, we're going to give you this loan, but we want you to sign on the dotted line. You can't tell Wells Fargo, well, I don't need a piece of paper to prove. <laughs> no, you do. Actually, you need a piece of paper. Seriously, sign the paper. You know, Wells Fargo is going to tell you, okay, no, no, it's true. You don't need a piece of paper to prove that you have money in the bank now. <laughs> the piece of paper is not about now. The contract, the covenant is not about now. When, 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 when a couple stands before me and they, they, they pronounce their love and they pronounce their vows, of course they're in love. I mean, you can obviously tell they're in love. They obviously feel in love toward each other right now. A covenant is bigger than love. It's not a, it's not a promise of love now. It's a guarantee of love later. Or as Richard Greer said in Runaway Bride, there's going to come a time when one or both of us are going to want to get out of this thing. But I just know that if I don't make you mine, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life or something like that. It was a quote from Runaway Bride. Anyway, like that's what marriage is. That's what covenant is. It is to say that I'm going to change over the next 15 years, over the next 30 years. My life is going to change. My, my thinking is going to change. My values are going to change. I am changing. I'm getting older, if nothing else. I am getting more gray hair. My body's not working the way it used to. You know, my back, I kind of threw my back out this week. Like, I just can't do what I used to do. I am changing, but when I make a covenant, covenant with Roe, what I'm saying is even though I change, even though you change, my love for you is not going to change. I have this commitment. I have this covenant. 
And so to those who would say, well, I, you know, a piece of paper doesn't prove my love to you, that's true. It, it is true. It's probably because your love hasn't reached a, a, a maturity level that, that you're ready to sign on the dotted line, that you're ready to say, come what may, that you're ready to look into the future and guarantee your love for that person. And by piece of paper, I don't necessarily mean with the government. I think, I, I, I think governments change the way that they do things. I think a covenant before God and before God's people is really what marriage is all about, making that covenant. And so in, in heaven, there's no need for covenants. There's no need for covenants. Now, there is still friendship in heaven. There's still intimacy in heaven. Um, Roe and I are probably going to share a mansion. I'm just saying we'll have one in New Zealand, a New Zealand mansion and a Texas mansion. In the summer, we'll be uh, in New Zealand away from here. And in the winter, we'll, we'll, we'll come hang out with you all. Uh, it, you know, so, I mean, you know, it's kind of a free country in heaven. I think we'll be able to still recognize each other. Um, the Bible talks about the fact that um, people are recognizable in heaven. So um, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was visited by these two spirits of people who had died in the past. And Peter, James, and John recognized that those spirits were Moses and Elijah. And they said, hey, that's Moses and Elijah. How did they know that? They never saw a picture of Moses and Elijah. They, they didn't, they didn't ever watch the Moses and Elijah movie. They just somehow, the Bible tells us that we will know people. So you don't have to keep all your old photographs of all your dead relatives. Somehow you will know them. I don't know how, but somehow there's a scripture says that we will know as we are known, that there will be this somehow knowing that's deeper than the eyes can see, that's deeper than the ears can hear. There will be a knowing of somebody without any rec facial recognition. You will know those who have gone on before us. You will, you'll recognize them. And so that means I'll, you'll definitely recognize the love of your life. And if you want to live in a mansion with love in your, of your life, I think, I think God's going to be okay with that. Um, and if you're married to seven different loves, you guys work it out. And uh, however, however you want to work it out, that's up to you. Um, but, uh, but, but anyway, but heaven is something that I think is, has, been, has been downplayed so much in today's culture. It's put forth as this boring place. You're sitting on a cloud. You can't be married. You can't have sex. There's no beer. Um, we've talked about those every single week. Um, but the truth is that heaven is amazing, that the God who created marriage created heaven, and he's telling us that it's better. That the God who, who created all of the things that we currently enjoy has created heaven and he's telling us that it's even better. It's the ultimate upgrade. It's God's ultimate upgrade. And so today I want to just look at Revelation chapter 4 and a little bit of chapter 5 and, and, and actually dig into a first-hand account of heaven. So if you're following along with, with us in your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. Uh, if not, we have it up on the screen for you. This is written by a guy named John. He was uh, a disciple of Jesus. He actually walked with Jesus, um, talked with Jesus. He, he was the only disciple, actually, who wasn't martyred for his faith. It doesn't mean that he didn't suffer for his faith. He just wasn't ultimately killed for his faith. Uh, he wrote the book of Revelation. This is the last book of the Bible. It's the, one of the most mysterious books of the Bible. He's talking about things that he has seen in heaven. He's an eyewitness account of heaven. And John writes these things for, for his present day Christians who are, who are living, but also for us, that we might know what God has in store for those of us who believe in him and trust in him. And so John writes uh, in Revelation, but the first couple chapters of Revelation is kind of like a, a, a precursor. Chapter one is, is, is a lot about how John, uh, the context in which John received the Revelation. So John tells us in chapter 1 that he was on the island of Patmos. 
He doesn't give much explanation, but we know from church history and from the church fathers that he wasn't on vacation on the island of Patmos. I've talked about this a couple times before. Basically what happened is Patmos was a, a Roman um, prison island. It was a small island. They had cut down all of the trees. There was absolutely zero shade on this island. And John, before he was escorted to this paradise, uh, was first lowered in boiling oil. Uh, he was lowered in boiling oil his entire body except for his head so that all over his body was filled with, 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 with serious degree burns. I mean, he was charred. He was, his skin, he was, he was deep fried. And, and, and they, they pulled him out of the oil, placed him on a ship, dro- uh, sailed him off to the island, dropped him off on the island where there is no shade, naked, chained up in order to burn in the sun. This is not a good situation for John. Now, John doesn't go into how awful it was and how difficult it was. The other church fathers talk about um, exactly what happened to John. John just says he was on the island of Patmos because he had been preaching Jesus. He wasn't there because he was a bad person. He wasn't there because he had broke any moral laws of God. He was there for doing the right thing. I mean, he did the right thing and he still got burned, <laughs> literally. He, he did the right thing and he still had scars to show for it. He did the right thing and he was still being mistreated and he was still being persecuted and he, he was still being um, uh, hurt and wounded by people. He's doing the right thing and yet he doesn't look up to God and say, God, what happened? I was doing the right thing. No, he understands that because he was doing the right thing, he was under persecution. Some, some of you might just need to figure out that whenever you start doing the right thing, that's when the enemy gets mad at you. That's when things start coming against you. That's when you face a little something known as headwind. That's when you face something known as persecution. That's when people start talking about you. That's when people start uh, getting angry at you for seemingly no reason whatsoever when you're doing the right thing. John's doing the right thing and he's dropped off in the island of Patmos after having been lowered into boiling oil. And it was in that situation that God speaks to him. He speaks to him first in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. He gives him uh, messages for the seven churches, seven major churches um, in the world at that time. And then in chapter 4 it says, after these things, he says, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. That's interesting. This chapter starts with the words after these things. And then the angel says, come up here. I must show you things that will take place after this. I I feel like one of the main purposes of this sermon series is for you to have an understanding of what will take place after this. Like after these things, after this. Uh, We're we're often so concerned about what's happening right here and right now that we need God sometimes to elevate our perspective and allow us to see what's going to happen after this. Sometimes God's not going to save you from every difficulty. He's not going to rescue, from, 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 rescue you from everybody who doesn't like you. He's not going to help you avoid every hard situation and difficult situation in life. But he will give you a perspective on what will happen after 
these things. Actually, for the person who is following Jesus, after these things is a great encouragement. After these things is something better. After these things is something greater. But for those who are not following Jesus, after these things is a, is a thought, it's a concept that's very scary because it's just this, this, this dark abyss and they're not sure. All they are sure of is what they have right here and right now. But what God wants for you, what God wants you to understand and to see is what will happen after these things. Some of you may be going through very difficult times right now. You may have lost uh, some things that you held dear. You may, things didn't work out the way you thought. You're, you're at a certain age and you thought it was going to be a certain way. And, 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 and it's almost like we have a tendency to look back and try to figure out, man, how could we have gotten better and, and gotten ourselves into a better situation? But God sometimes wants to elevate our perspective to see after these things. So this is God's perspective. God doesn't just have a now perspective. He has a after these things perspective. He is not just concerned and aware of what's happening in your life right now, but he is also very aware of what's happening after these things. So much of what we do actually as a church is because we believe in a time after these things. Right? Like uh, uh, we're, we're, we're feeding kids. We're doing keep kids fed. Because yeah, right now kids are hungry, but the real reason why we are keeping 101 kids fed um, on the weekend from Williams Elementary and Betacheck Middle School is because after these things, those kids are going to grow up. <laughs> you might want to think about after these things every once in a while. I'm just saying, you might just want to evaluate after these things just a little bit. How are my actions affecting after these things? What is God doing in my life that is setting up something after these things? Because if you're constantly living for the now, you're always on a need basis. And, and you, you never get the perspective of heaven, which is after these things. The reason we're feeding kids now is, yeah, because kids are hungry, but two, because when these kids who are going to this school right now, when, when they become 20 and 25-year-olds and all of their friends in Austin tell them how the church is just full of hypocrites, I want them to be able to say, no, actually, the church is the one who brought me food when nobody else was bringing me food. I want them to understand that the church is not just full of hypocrites, judge, ju judging them, maybe you know, telling, well, their parents should just get a job. No, we are the ones who are loving them and taking care of them and feeding them and clothing them. And by the way, we're going to buy them, we're going to buy them uh, toys for Christmas too, just because that's what we're going to do after these things. You, you, you have to have an after these things mentality. Sometimes you got to have a higher vision. John is not in a good situation. He's in pain. He's in suffering. And God, the angel appears to him and opens a door for him in heaven and says, come up here, John. I want you to rise above where you're at and come up here so you can start to get a perspective on after these things. He has, this, he has this after these things moment. He rises up to heaven. The first place he goes is in chapter four. He goes into the throne room. God shows him his throne room or God is there on the throne and there's a lot of strange creatures all around and it's really kind of interesting. Uh, but then in chapter five, uh, if we could turn to chapter five, verse one, uh, he, the, the scene begins unfolding for him uh, in the throne room. And he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now a scroll is an ancient form of a book. They didn't have books back then. They had scrolls. It was basically papyrus paper that was rolled up on a, on a, on a wooden dowel, rolled up. Um, they could be as long as like 30 feet long. Um, massive, massive scrolls. I think the, I think the book of Matthew, the, the, the gospel of Matthew was like 33 feet long when they unrolled the whole thing. Um, and, and, and this is, this is how they kept records. This is how they did court documents. This is how they, uh, any kind of literature, it was written on a scroll. 
And so John goes into the throne room and he sees in the right hand of him who's sitting on the throne a scroll written on the inside, but also on the back. This is weird because they never would write on the back of a scroll. Because when you roll it up, the backside is going to get a lot of wear and tear. It's going to be exposed to the elements. And so you never wrote on the backside of the scroll unless there was so much in the scroll that you ran out of room and you had to write around on the back. So this is just an interesting detail. He says, I saw a scroll written inside and on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. A seal would have been a, a large stamp of, of melted wax, and they pressed that wax onto the end of the scroll, basically gluing it, gluing the end of the scroll to the rest of the scroll so you can't open it without tearing it. Um, they would seal um, important documents, important letters that's going from one uh, Roman governor to another Roman governor with one seal. But seven seals is interesting. Seven seals is an extra, extra heavy duty. This is, this is the, this is, this is the uh, David Sowers version of sealing the scroll. <laughs> and then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Now, the fact that it has seven seals, most scholars believe that there's no way you would regularly um, use seven seals for a scroll unless it was, a, it was a special document known as a written will. Like we write out wills, your last will and testament. And so it seems most scholars call this the book of destiny or the book of the, the written will of God. It's the, it's the last will and testament of the Father. John is taken from the island of Patmos, immediately taken up into heaven. And the first thing God shows him is this scroll that is in his hand, in God's hand, this scroll. And the scroll has seven seals, which would have told John, this is not just a special document. This isn't just the Kennedy files. This is... This is a will. It has seven seals. This is a written will. This is the will of someone um, who, has, who has sat down. You, you, you know how you write a will. You sit down and you, you say, well, I like this kid the best, so I'm going to give him <laughs> X amount. Micah has asked, asked me for, his car, for my car when he dies. So the Ford, 2009 Ford Focus is going to Micah when I die. Um, Madden, I don't know what she wants when I die. I, she probably wants my silver. I have a couple silver pieces. Um, anyway, you know, you sit down and you write all the will. We were, we were talking to Jennifer this week and uh, one of her, her stepson wanted this very important document that's very important to her. And he asked if she could have it. And she said, no, it's very important to me right now. I'm going to keep it. And he said, okay, but you know, when you go on, make sure I get it, you know, <laughs> like put it in the will. Um, and then lo and behold, she's got a little surprise going on. But, uh, you know, but, but, but that's, that, that, that's what the will is. The will is when the father sits down, he says, what, what is mine, I'm going to leave to my kids. And it's the way that he divvies it out. It's the way that he appropriates everything that is his and transfers them. It's the inheritance of his children. I think, I think it's so helpful. I think one of the great things about thinking about heaven and preaching about heaven and talking about heaven is it reminds us of what the Father is ready to give us. It tells us about God's will. And I don't mean God's will like what God wants done right here and now, but what God has written in heaven for you and for me. Jesus said, um, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. 
I, I, I'm going to prepare a place for you and then I'm going to take you back to myself and I'm going to give you this place. There's something, there, is, there are many things in God's will for you and for me. It's in the will. It's written in the will. And, it's, and this is a will that is, is massive because it's written on the inside and on the back. It's a will that's large enough, the scroll is large enough for John to be able to see it from his, from his distant vantage point and actually see that there are words written around on the outside and actually count the amount of seals on it. This is a massive will for the people of God, for you and for me, for those who believe in Jesus. God has this amazing, massive plan for us, this, the, 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 these things in store for us, hope for us, joy for us, whatever is his, he is getting ready to pass on to us. And John, like, if John was charismatic, he would start, like, taking a lap right there, you know? Like, just, just lapping around the, the head. I mean, he's, he, you, you know he's excited. You know he went from this place of absolute destitution, absolute loss, absolute suffering, and suddenly he's in heaven, and oh my goodness, there is this amazing, like, I, I see what's happening in my life here, but when I see what God has planned for me, Jeremiah 29, 11, God says, I know the plans I have for you. I have the will in my hand. I know the plans I have, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and hope. And so suddenly he just gets, hope starts welling up inside of John. Hope starts stirring up inside of John. John sees the plans that God has for him. And it's so much better than what he's experiencing in his life that he says, man, God, I may be suffering right now, but God has awesome plans for me. God has great things for me. Last week I shared my story. I, I charted out my life. Um, just, 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 just interesting. A show of hands. How many of you went home and charted out your life? How many of you took my advice? <laughs> Mia, and she's available this afternoon, people. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. She did it. Nice. The rest of you, man, want to make a pastor quit? I just tell you what. I just, I, I try and I try. Do you even remember my sermon for last week? I mean, do they mean anything to you at all? Um, okay, I'll stop being passive aggressive. I'll just be aggressive. Um, here's the deal. Like, like I, I charted out my life, right? I gave you my ups and my downs. I was very open and honest with you. I was, I was transparent. I was sharing my soul. And some of you didn't even do anything with it. But okay, fine. But, you know, and, and the purpose of it, though, was so that you could see, even just in my 37 years, that you could see that there are ups and there are downs, but that God has something better for you wherever you're at now whatever low point you're at or a high point you're at God has something better for you 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 got it you got it you you can't fold before the flop I don't know if any of you all play poker much but um I thought about titling this message I mean you can if you want to lose but I thought about titling this message you know uh, uh the winning hand or you know heavenly Texas hold'em or something like that because because it's almost like, like, okay, so for, for those of you that don't know how to play poker, the way you play poker is, this is, I'm not an expert, but this is how I play. Uh, you get, you get two cards dealt to you by the dealer. Dealer gives everybody two cards. You, you look at your two cards, right? And then you see if they're good. And if they're, if they're good, the worst hand you can possibly have, I think is a two and a seven. Is that right? Statistically, that's the, the absolute worst. You, you might want to fold if you get a two and a seven, uh, the absolute worst hand. But you know, you sort of look, you know, if you have high cards, that's really good. If you have, if you have, uh, uh, if you have two aces or two kings or something like that, I mean, that's great. So you look at your cards and then you, you sort of decide whether or not you have a good hand or not. And then you have to decide whether you're going to ante up. 
Now, 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 it would be different if, if poker was played because the truth is you, you're, you're not just playing those two cards that you have. Those of you that play poker, you know that the two cards that you have, you don't really know the value of those cards yet because honestly, you're not playing those two cards. You're playing those two cards based on what the dealer lays down on the table. So, uh, you know, it, they, they deal out two cards to everybody and then you don't just put place bets and then lay your two cards down and see who wins. That's not how it works. No, you have to ante up. You have to put, you have to pay to play. You have to put some chips in the pot. We ought to have a men's poker night. I'm just saying, that just came to me. I feel the Holy Spirit's leading me right now. Uh, men's poker night. Somebody go organize that and let's do it. Uh, or women can play too. I don't mind. I'm not, I, I don't discriminate, Mia. Um, you just, you know, so, so, you, so you, you get your two cards. And, and if you're not careful though, you'll get discouraged. If you think your two cards are bad, you'll get discouraged with the hand that you've been dealt. And it's happened to me so many times. I'm playing poker so many times. I've been like, man, this is awful. I like this is, I, I keep getting trash, trash, and more trash. I mean, it's like my fantasy football team. It's just, I just can't even deal. And so I just, I just fold. I fold. I'm not going to ante up. I'm not going to put anything into the pot. I don't care what the dealer lays down on the table. I don't have anything good at all. And then the flop comes. The flop is when he puts three cards out on the table. It's the biggest transparency. It's the, it's the biggest. They, he only puts five in the whole time. But so he puts three all at once and suddenly, oh my goodness, I had an awesome hand. Like, I didn't even know it. I had a seven and a six. And then all of a sudden there's a eight, nine, ten jack. You know, what in the world? You know, it's like, it's like you don't know. You can get discouraged with the hand that you're dealt if you don't hold on to that, that hand and see how it matches with the flop. And so in real life, I mean, maybe sometimes in poker it's wise to fold before the flop. But in real life, I, let me tell you, just because you're on, in a valley right now, just because you're in a low place right now, just because you're on the island of Patmos and you've been burned by so many people, that you can't even, you got so many scars all over you. It doesn't mean that you have a bad hand. You don't even know what you need. God knows what's coming on the flop. The dealer, guess what? The dealer, the one who dealt you those cards, the one who dealt you that, that, that IQ level, the one who dealt you those qualities. And that, I mean, you can get real jealous of people who seem to have better cards than you, but maybe they need something that you don't even need because your flop is coming for you. God has pre-planned the hand that he dealt for you. So be careful not to despise what he's given you, the family that he puts you in, the location that you were born in, the hair color that you got, the height that you are. I don't know anybody that feels short in here, but anyway, for, for whatever situation you might say, man, I'm short in this, I'm, I lack that, I don't have that. No, 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 that's what you've been dealt. So don't get discouraged with the hand that you've been dealt. There's a, there's, there's, there's a flop coming. Pay for the flop. Just stick around. <laughs> stick around long enough to see what God has coming after this. He goes up into heaven and he sees this scroll and it's almost like he saw the flop. <laughs> and he saw that, wait a minute, I might be suffering right now, but God has some awesome things in store for me. I might be going through some stuff right now, but God's going to use it for his glory and for my good. In fact, the Bible tells us about heaven in Revelations 2 and 3. The Bible tells us about heaven that there are all these awards given out, that there are all these crowns given out, that there are all these things given out. And so how you, how you respond, how you behave right here, how you live right here matters. 
God's keeping track of every little good thing that you do, every dollar that you give to his ministry, every time, every hour that you spend serving other people, every, every smile that you give to somebody, every glass of water, the Bible actually says, every glass of water he will reward, every glass of water you give, every time you give socks to the homeless guy on the corner, you pull up in the street, God rewards, he sees all of those things. So it's sometimes it's very helpful to say, yes, my life is difficult right now, but I'm going to wait to get discouraged. I'm going to wait to get to give up. I'm not going to give up in the middle of difficulty. I'm going to wait for the flop. I'm going to wait to see what God has in store for me because my hand might just be perfect for, for what God is bringing around the corner. And John goes up to heaven and he sees this, this scroll and it's written on the inside and the back. And you know he's got to be fired up. He's got to be encouraged. And then an angel steps up and says, who's worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able uh, to open the scroll or even to look at it. Verse 4 says, so I wept much. The actual uh, original language there means he, he fell down on his face. He, he just collapsed, broke down. He says, I broke down because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to read it or even to look at it. He goes from this place of exaltation, of excitement, of hope. And then an angel asks the question that all of us fear. Who is worthy? (laughs) And his spirit drops. Oh, yeah. And even as I've been talking about heaven for the past few weeks, I know many people are asking the question, yeah, but who is worthy? Like, who is good enough? I talked to one guy in prison ministry, and um, I was asking him about heaven uh, here in Austin. And uh, he said, he said, oh, no, no, I'm going to heaven. It's all good. And I said, really? Okay. Um, why? I mean, how, like, how do you know that? And he said, well, see, I got it figured out. See, like when we, when, when we die, we stand before God. He's got this big scale and he puts all of our bad stuff on this side. He puts all of our good stuff on this side. And, and if it sort of weighs out, then he lets you in. Oh my <laughs> I said, did you read this somewhere? Did the angel tell you this? It's really cool. He said, no, no, I just you know, came up with it. <laughs> I said, that sounds like a safe bet, man. Uh, that's, that's great. Your eternal destiny on something you just came up with. That is... That's, that's cool. That's great. Um, I think I'll stick to the Bible. I'll, you, know, you do your thing. And I said, so, you know, uh, how do you know how much your stuff weighs? You know, because I asked him if he's going to heaven. He said, yes. So obviously he has some idea of the balance here. I said, so like, how much does your bad stuff weigh? And he's like, oh, I don't know, you know, a little bit. He said, how much does your good stuff weigh? Well, you know, a little bit. I said, a little bit? Like your eternal destiny and you're telling me a little bit? Like I need pounds, ounces. I mean, we need, we need to know. Like we need like some figures here. Like, you know, I mean, how, how heavy is your, is, your bad, is your sin and how, how heavy is your righteousness? Because if your righteousness, if you get there and your, your, your sin was like bricks and your righteousness was like filthy rags, like it says somewhere, somebody wrote that one time, uh, you're in trouble. <laughs> in fact, we're all in trouble. Who is worthy? How exactly are you going to atone for the stuff that you have done wrong? And I said, dude, you're in prison. 
Like, apparently somebody thinks you've done some pretty bad stuff, pretty heavy stuff. I'm not judging. I'm just saying. I mean, you know, I said, maybe, maybe you're not quite, you know, you know, seeing it correctly. He said, no, no, no. I'm just in prison because I lied for a buddy so that he wouldn't be in prison. I said, oh, great. The guilty guy's out there on the street. <laughs> I, I, I was trying to help him feel really good, positive and encouraging. I mean, you know, just step on all of his toes. I mean, all 10 of them. I was just like, come on, man. Like, you got to think about this. This is eternal life or death that we're talking about here. You might want to go off of more than like how much you think stuff weighs. Because when I look at my life, I know I haven't done anything nearly good enough to make up for all the bad stuff that I've done and thought about doing and wanted to do if I had a chance to do. <laughs> And even some of my good stuff, I didn't lie for somebody to stay on the streets, but some of my stuff I thought was good. Later on, I look back and I'm like, wait a minute, that was selfish. That had selfish intent in it. I was getting something out of that. I was doing that for me. So I said, okay, you're in prison. You think you're good. I'm not. Like, I'll tell you right now, my stuff is not okay. It It doesn't outweigh the bad. When I ask who is worthy, I'm not going to raise my hand. I can't raise my hand. I'm not worthy. And scripture tells us that nobody is worthy. That nobody has behaved in such a way. Nobody has been perfect in such a way as to open up the will of God for them. To open up heaven for them. Not Not just the eternal will of God, but also the present will of God. And so he weeps, he breaks down because, because he realizes, I mean, he's so close. He sees that God has these plans, but his unworthiness is holding him back. <laughs> his unworthiness shuts him down from access to what God has promised. And he weeps. He does what all of us do when we finally get that, when we finally realize that. And that's what salvation is, by the way. When you finally realize that all your good stuff doesn't amount to nothing. And, 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 and he weeps, he breaks down. And so one of the angels, one of the elders says to him, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed. He's conquered to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Let's go on to the next uh, verse there. I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and, and of the four living creatures in the middle of the elders stood a lamb, that's Jesus, here he's pictured as a lamb, as though it had been slain. I don't, I don't understand how a lamb can be standing up that's been slain, but, but this is key. This is key to the lamb's ability, worthiness to open the scroll. Because like I said before, this is a written will. And so in ancient times, as in modern times, when a man or a woman sits down and writes out their will, they seal it up. It doesn't get opened until the author of the will dies. So the, will, the, the author of the will has to die. In order for you and I to receive everything that God has promised to us, God has to die because it's a will and as long as he's living we don't get our inheritance and as long as God is living and he's written it we don't get his his, his inheritance we don't receive what was his 
This is true in, 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 reg- in modern days. It's true in ancient days. As long as the father is living, uh, it's not your stuff yet. <laughs> the father had to die. God had to die. That's why the lamb had to be slain. That's why Jesus had to die for us. Yes, for our sins and for the forgiveness of our sins, but also to open up the will of God for us, the promises of God for us, so that when he died, it enacted the will of God. It enabled the written will, the living will, the last will and testament of God. It, 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 it enacted it. Now, 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 in ancient times, you had the scroll with seven seals, and, and you could tell if somebody had snuck into it because the seal was broken. And so after the father would die, after the writer of the will would die, um, they would call the oldest son. The oldest son would come and be a witness. The oldest son would be the one to open up the scroll. And, and a foreigner couldn't do it. Adopted kid couldn't do it. Nobody else could do it except the oldest son of the one who wrote the will. And this is why Jesus is so amazing that he, on the one hand, dies in order to open up the will of God to us, to enable it, to enact it. But then he had to rise again on the third day in order to be present in heaven when God wanted to open it. He had to, he, he had to die in order to enact the will, but he had to rise again and ascend to heaven in order to be present to open up the will of God for us. So that when he is there in heaven, John sees him. This isn't just a vision. This is reality. John is in heaven and he sees this lamb that has been slain, past tense. It's now alive. It has seven horns. That means uh, seven is, is the number of completeness. Horns symbolizes authority. He has complete authority in seven eyes. So he has complete authority. He has complete knowledge, complete wisdom. These are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having um, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And this is what they, this is what they sang to him. They said, they said, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals because you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we will reign on the earth. This is happening in heaven and this is what God has done for us in heaven. As we've been talking about heaven the past few weeks, uh, at the end of every week, we talk about how to get to heaven and we talk about putting our faith in Jesus. This is what we're putting our faith in. The lamb who has died to enable the will of God has risen again to open up the will of God for us. And a God who is ready to give us all of it right now through faith. He's able to give us all of this that he has prepared for us. And so my challenge to you is to, first of all, stop trying to earn what you're supposed to inherit. Stop trying to work for what Christ has already accomplished. Stop trying to add to it. I figure if you're here in church on a Sunday morning, you, like me, feel a sense of obligation to God, and that's fine, and that's good. And hopefully church is an encouragement to you, a blessing to you, and hopefully it's a blessing to the kids and it helps them grow up in a way that they know God. But the downside 
of this sense of obligation to God, the downside is that after, that after we have done what we feel we are supposed to do, we start believing that somehow what we did is wrapped up in what we received. And this is not the case. This is inherited. This is an inheritance. This is a will of God for you and for me. Heaven is not the reward of people who have done good things in life. My grandpa lived 72 years for himself, stubbornly refusing to ever come to church. I don't think he ever heard me preach, actually. He was was dead set on the fact that he was good. Uh, He was... uh, uh, sort of, I'm from Michigan, so we don't have like cowboys up there, but we do have cowboy boots, we do have cigarettes, and we got country music, and that's what grandpa had all of those things. And he figured he didn't need God because he had boots, cigarettes, and cowboy and country music. And, uh, you know, I mean, he was a morally decent person. And so I, I'm sure when he looked at the scales of his life, he thought, you know what? I'm not doing so bad. I got a lot of good stuff to make up for some of my bad stuff and I'm doing just fine. And all the times that we would invite him to church and we prayed for him and, uh, prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him and grandma, they, they, they just, they, they, you know, I think maybe they came to a couple of Christmas plays, maybe, I don't know, but they, they just never, they stubbornly refused to acknowledge their need for God until he goes into the hospital and he's got a melon, uh, he's got a tumor the size of a melon in his chest from smoking all those years and he goes into a coma. He wakes up for 15 minutes and my dad says to him in the hospital bed, dad, do you know if you're going to go to heaven? Because this is real serious. And grandpa says, no, I don't know that. And so dad says, well, would you like to pray with me and make God the boss of your life as we tell our kids and submit to him and repent to him and receive him into your heart? And grandpa says, yes, I'd like to do that. And right there in the hospital bed in Port here in Michigan, grandpa at age, I think it was 72, 15 minutes before he slipped off into eternity, decided finally to give in to the God who had been pursuing him all of his life. Did he earn heaven? No, he didn't do a thing. (laughs) He didn't have time. He had 15 minutes and he's laying there on the bed before he went back into coma and died that afternoon. He didn't do a single thing for God. Did he, is is this some kind of reward for all the good stuff? No, all of his good stuff was filthy rags. All of his life was mostly about himself, his family, his things, all things that applied to him. He lived for himself. And then finally, in the last 15 minutes, gave his life to God. What did he do? Did he earn something? No, he inherited something. He is in heaven now, not because of something he did, but because of something he inherited. And as much as I have followed God, and I can look back and say, well, I'm a whole lot better than grandpa. No, the truth is, none of my good stuff makes up for my bad stuff either. I am just as helpless and hopeless as my grandpa. Really, all of us are basically on a hospital bed 15 minutes from our death, crying out to God to have mercy on us, to have pity on us, to forgive us of everything that we've done and to prepare heaven for us. That's where we are. And that's really where we live. We live on a hospital bed. We live inches away from eternity. We, we, we have to understand that this is not something you can earn. What are you going to do to be worthy? You can't. This is something you receive. This is something that you inherit through faith. You put your faith in the one who is worthy. And this is why throughout Revelation, you have constantly saints and angels singing about how worthy Jesus is, how worthy he is. I'm not worthy, but he's worthy. I'm not worthy, but he's worthy. I'm not able, but he's worthy. 
I can't really do anything. I'm not that smart, but he's worthy. And it's his worth that has captured my focus. It's his worth that has captured my attention. 